Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on today. We're going to have Elk Live on. They do uh, this, uh, they, they create this great hardware and software that allows, allows artists to integrate with, I mean, basically uh, play together uh, remotely. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that we're going to be talking more about that. Uh, we'll have uh, Bjorn Ehlers and uh, Max Gel- uh, Gendeman, uh will be here uh, in the uh, second hour to uh, talk about it. So stay tuned for that. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Tlaloc Lopez Waterman starts us out today. Uh, I heard Micah Sargent mention on MacBreak Weekly yesterday that iOS 17 will allow camera capture in iPad and maybe iPhone. I cannot find any info on this. Will the developer beta do this yet? Go ahead, John. First thing we did on Monday, downloaded the beta, and it's yes, it does work on on an iPad. Chris, do you remember which uh, which webcam that Jack plugged in? Uh, I do not. Yeah, we we he's he's only got an Obsbot and uh and a Brio, so one of those two cameras and it was working great. So given that a uh that a presenter the the uh, ATEM and the presenter show up as webcams, have you tried connecting an ATEM or a web presenter to the iPad cuz that would be something we're really interested in. Like that's a super super interesting thing for us to see. We have so, both those, we can try it out. Yeah, let's try that out. All right, next question. Next one comes to us from Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada. Yamaha has dropped it. They've just announced the DM7 series Dante-based medium format mixers, 72 in on the small, 120 channels in on the larger. Who's going first? And he's got a link there to Yamaha products. Um, they look great. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's it's a uh, there's a lot of us with QL1s and QL5s that are looking at these and going, "Wow, that's pretty nice, uh, pretty nice setup." Um, these are the step up, I think, above the QL and CLs uh, typically, um, and um, they're, you know, it's it's been a killer line. So, or, or that that area. So it, it looks it looks pretty impressive. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's very impressive, and I do know that there is an office hours person that does have a DM7. I'm not, of course, I'm not going to say who it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll ping him and see if he's willing to come on the show and talk about it. That sounds good. All right, next question. Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. Apple quietly released a DirectX 12 translation layer. How do you think this will affect gaming on Mac OS? And there's a link there. Good, John. Wow, whoever caught this had some really good eyes. Because there was a little little box up in the window that showed Direct DirectX running in, on Rosetta, which means that it will probably be too slow. So I don't affect I don't expect any major movement in this area, but it's novel. Good, Courtney. Yeah, gamers are <clears throat> very uh, concerned with their latency, and they they spend thousands of dollars to reduce their latency by just you know two milliseconds. So any kind of DirectX. Uh, um, a translation layer that goes in there is going to cause more latency. And then if it has to be used under Rosetta, that's even more latency. So I doubt gamers are going to be jumping on that bandwagon. Uh, go ahead, Jeffrey. Uh, I'm more, I'm more interested in to see if, uh, how the graphics are going to start to work in live streaming, uh, how, uh, like Ecamm and Wirecast are going to utilize this, for their uh, for their stuff, so it's going to be more than just gaming that's going to be affected on this, and I think this is a good thing. Could be vMix could come over too. Yeah, I think that uh, I think it's mostly for gamers to quickly preview their games and to look at it. I don't think it's really for release. 
So I doubt I doubt the DirectX translation layer will be used in release products. I think it'll be it, it allows them to open it up and see how it would run, see what they and get a sense of. They, they talked a little bit about this in the keynote. Get a sense of what what it'll take to make it actually work. But I'm not sure that they're really committed to. Um, I don't think people are going to release DirectX games uh, into that translation layer. I do think that Apple could, you know, Apple has the advantage of uh, a unified platform from the phone to the computers to the iPad to the to the headset. If they want to turn on gaming, they could turn it on, you know. And and if they're not, if they don't have the vision to do that. That's one thing. But but they, but I can tell you that they could build games and create enough draw to make it a significant gaming platform. Um, they're just not doing it yet. So we'll, we'll see We'll see if they actually turn that on or not. Um, there's a thing called money that makes it a lot easier. You, you build a, an art, you know, real, uh, an art, you know, a first person shooter, and then you put out cash prizes. <laughs> People will show up <laughs> because it's just, to, to the gamers, it's just a business. Now, next question. Craig Kadoki in Toronto, Canada is up next. I haven't heard much about Vision Pro Personas. Maybe I've just missed it. While we've all been promoting a higher quality live image, what do you feel the reaction to a high-level scanned avatar to, of yourself, and how much can it be customized? Good, Chris. Yeah, so Alex, I'm looking at your image here, and, and I'm noticing you have the background colors off. Are we doing colors off or background lighting on or off? No, or? It, it, I was... I, I had to I had to fix something uh, and I forgot to turn them on. That's that's okay. it's, it's not there's no. Is it okay there. if I turn mine on? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I'm I'm only half joking about that. You know the thing about this avatar thing that I find very interesting. Um, we had a discussion a couple of weeks ago, uh, months ago, maybe. I think it's NVIDIA created some sort of a plugin that would take people's eyes when they're looking off camera and make it magically look like they're looking at camera. And Alex, you said. Um, well, that's great until it doesn't work once. And then all of a sudden you're fixated and you're staring at this, these fake eyes, these uh, uh, adjusted eyes. Um, I, I, th I think this avatar thing, uh, what is it, the persona Craig called it? I think it's cute. Uh, but I can't imagine sitting in a business meeting talking to somebody like that. I can't imagine, uh, somebody, you know, uh, scolding me or, you know, talking me down because uh, we didn't meet their objective on a project when I'm talking to a cartoon. Like, that's not real. And how, what's going to happen with the mouth? It has all these sensors looking at my eyes, but how, what is the has, mouth doing? It has sensors. The sensors at the bottom can see your mouth as well. So it can okay, take, it so, can see it, yeah. And they'll be delayed from the words that I'm saying. Because it has to think about it and it has to draw it. Uh, I mean, I can't I imagine. At, I think if you look at emoji, it's it's they've they've been figuring they've been working on that for a little while. Like okay, you know. But do you really want to have a I'm business not saying I want meeting? It. I'm just saying that I'm just saying that those no, things. I, I, I'm, I'm I'm asking the rhetorical question to anybody yeah. who's thinking about this thing. Do you really want to be involved in a in a meeting with a client as a cartoon? Yeah, you yeah, know, I I'm 100 behind you. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, what, what shocked me, I remember the experience we had here in Office Hours a little bit less than a year ago, and we all did Unreal Engine stuff, and we were doing our avatars for a particular show, and that pain, the, how painful that process was for me. Even though I went through Unreal Engine's character generator thing, and I spent hours in there, what came out the other end was so far from what anybody would consider recognizable for my cartoon avatar that it was insane. 
I just said, no, this is not ready for prime time at all. What they showed on the Apple demo, though, was essentially turning the unit around and doing a scan. And what was created in the virtual screen on the front so that people could see your eyes wasn't perfect. But it was so many light years ahead of where it had been when I tried to do that in the real world that with the other tools that I thought, my gosh, this has come just gigantic distances towards mm. a captured scan that mapped and mm. could turn around and become re real-ish that you take the same amount of time forward. I have no idea where we'll be. It could be really fascinating. Go, Jeffrey. Uh, first of all, Fenwick, to answer your question, it's not only just a camera that's pointed at mouth, but it's also using the voice. Uh, Character Animator does this, uh, Adobe's Character Animator. You can actually turn off the, uh, the, the vision thing that they have, and then you can just talk into it, and it's just assuming how the, the mouth positions when, when it talks sort of there. Um, if you watch the video again, and I watched it really closely, the, the big thing, uh, just as Chris said, was the latency. Uh, you could see somebody, you know, blinking their eyes. And then all of a sudden that visor blinks just an ever so fraction of a second later. Uh, it's it's always going to happen that way. I don't know if we're going to get anything that's going to have a real-time mode to it. And stuff like that, you definitely miss things when uh, when you have an avatar over a real person. So, yeah, uh, if, if, I, if, if somebody says something and I cringe, will that avatar pick up mm -hmm. the cringe and then, and then use it from there? Good, Courtney. Uh, as far as customizing it, I doubt they're going to give you the ability to customize it. But what you could do is put it into training mode or capture mode when you go to set up the uh, um, device, the Vision Pro, and point it at your more handsome friend, capture their face, and it'll never know the difference. And then you can be <laughs> that person. Then you could do that for everybody in a meeting. And it's like, and being John Malkovich, the scene where everyone is John Malkovich. You, know? you mean I could always look like John Preto? That'd yeah. be awesome. <laughs> Go ahead, Ronnie. I think the the we we, we will be getting used to uh, looking at avatars and and uh, experience this uh, as we go on. Just uh, see how companies has uh, uh, been been used to, yeah, using different type of uh, uh, video uh, communication tools and. Uh, I think we're getting used to it, and uh, the quality is not a, as important as we think. I think it's pretty important. Like, I, I think that I think that the uh, I, I can I think that if I knew a bunch of people were coming in virtually, I, and I had the headset, I would specifically not use the headset because I know that I would have more power in the meeting. <laughs> like, if you're talking about a power move, the power move is a great camera and a great mic over top of everybody else in, that are virtual. I would get my projects done first. Like, you know, like I, I can promise you that if I came in with this camera and this mic and a setup against other people with avatars, I have a better chance of lo of locking the deal than they do. And that's that's something that is is a tricky thing. It's not that people won't get used to it. It's that you can very quickly be, you know, uh, uh, stand out in the crowd, be six foot seven in the crowd by just not doing what everybody else is doing because it is a lower quality version. It, we should not, you know, it's a lower quality version of everybody else. Yeah, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think what we saw yesterday was either a mock-up or a pre-release product. There's another year before, nine months before that product hits the market. That will be version one, then there'll be version two and three. And I think one should be very careful about assuming anything you saw yesterday is the end goal here. I think two other quick points, if I could. 
second of all, we may be entirely the wrong generation to have this conversation with, and the next generation may not have the same worries that we do about this. But if it's really important, pick up the phone, be direct, one-to-one. That's, that's always the more effective way of working. Good, Chris. If you want a real power move, Alex, it's not six foot seven. It's learning how to stand like this and mean it. <laughs> like, I want to change my framing to a wide shot just so I can come on office hours every day and stand. The Federighi like power that. stance. Was, that was quite a power stance that they had that he had there. It was it was pretty uh, it was pretty funny. Um, the uh, you know I, I do think though that that there are, it, people not complaining and people. Um, subtly not, um, reacting to something is very different. So people will tell you things that the, what, what we learned uh, over doing lots and lots of feedback from people who came to our events was to not ask for a lot of feedback and look at, look at behavior. Um, and we'd ask them a couple things. Um, you know, we'd ask them, what do they, what do they really enjoy about the meeting? What do they jo- enjoy about the event? Uh, what really bothered them with the event? What do they wish they had seen in the event? Those are things that we asked them about. And we found that those would be the most accurate things that came out of people's mouth. All these little one to tens, one to tens, one to tens. People actually don't know the answer to that. They make stuff up for you when you when you ask them those things because they don't know how they felt. Like, I know that sounds crazy, but they just, and what the reason we got into this is because we were we were working on these, these events. These are hybrid events. This is not long before COVID. And we were asking for feedback for people. And we realized when they, because when they didn't come to another event, we were asking, why are you not coming to another event? And in a nice way, you know, like, like, just like, hey, we're just wondering what, and it was always like, oh, I just, I just got busy. You know, I just had other things to do. It was a great event. And they had even given us great feedback before. And we realized that they had subtly decided that it just wasn't that important to go. The, the online audience had decided subtly that it wasn't as important as the other things in their life. They weren't complaining they weren't noticing. They didn't think anything was wrong. They just no longer valued the event at the same way that they had before. And that, and so the thing is, is that when we talk about what people will notice and what will, we have to be very careful of separating. I'm, the things that, that I'm talking about are million-year-old lower brain interactions with people. And it's very, very hard to get over. And I will say that we've spent billions of dollars on facial animation, you know, across all these movies what Apple's doing is very, very, very hard. Like it, it and it's not, if, if they if they pull it off, it's great, but getting it much better than what we saw in the demo will be astounding. You know, like, you know, and so it, it I, I think it's gonna be, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see if they can actually pull that off. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. With Apple going behind Unity instead of Unreal for the Vision Pro, is Unity the engine to learn now for VR development and or virtual production? I think it's really worth learning both. You know, there's lots of reasons to do it, and and you're just going to understand the market more. They're not that different. Um, so I would, I wouldn't, I don't think it's really a zigzag. But I do think if you're looking at working on the Apple platform, Unity and Apple's tools are going to be more effective than than Unreal. I don't think Apple's going to block Unreal from using their platform, but they could if they get back into another back and forth with they did they did in the past, and um, they're probably not going to give Unreal uh, or Epic uh, pre-release copies, answer their emails, <laughs> like you know, little things like that. They just don't, you know, so it's not that they're kicking them out. They're just not giving them any, there's just no love there. So, um, and that's they're Epic. They're ghosting zone. them. They're, yeah, they're, they're not ghosting them in the sense that they're not, uh, you know, but they're, yeah, but they're not definitely not, you know, so I think Unity is going to get all the goodies all the time. 
And I think, I think most of all, I think Apple, more than getting rid of Unreal, wants it to be an even fight between Unreal and Unity. That's good for them. Unity was, before the Epic, uh, before the Epic lawsuit, uh, Unity was almost gone from most of our development. Like it was still around and did still had another business that was really good, but it was nothing like what it is now because they're, they're, you know, people had kind of, a lot of us had kind of forgotten about them. Um, and suddenly, you know, we had, you know, when, when Unreal hit, everyone started looking at what's, what's going to happen next. And we were all waiting for Apple to mention Unity in a keynote. Well, there you go. They've mentioned them. And so I think that they're, I think that it's, it's not going to be, they're not going to beat Unreal, but it's going to be a much, much more even thing. And, and the cost to Unreal, to Epic is pretty high. Next question. Next question comes from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, everyone. I want to create a few 3D plant models. What Mac software and or external hardware, as well as processes, would you recommend to achieve this? Yeah, there are some plant generators. And I just, I, I don't know. I haven't had to do it for, I don't know, a couple decades. Um, that I'm just, you can hear me typing as I, as I try to remember what the, uh, there was a, I'm just seeing if I can find the one that I know the best. Um, but there are, you know, there's a variety you, what you want to do is search for a plant gener you know, generation tool. Um, and there are, you know, um, let's see if I do 3d, um, you know, obviously there's some that are, yeah, I, the ones that I know of are not, I don't think here, there's one called speed tree, which is a 3d vegetation modeling middleware. Um, that you can get there, but I don't know what is available on the Mac. Um, TreeGen is the, um, you know, but you want to do search, searching for a variety of these things. But I I, I don't know. Uh, the one that I've used in the past, and here I found it, uh, is XFrog. <laughs> XFrog is what I've used. XFrog Plants uh, is what I've used in the past. So it's, it's a, uh, um, uh, the stuff is pretty good. It depends on what you, what you need to build. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. I'm just astonished that the plant recognition, which is the other side of this, and creating 3D plant models, a way to build them. But there's so much activity that's happened in the point your camera at this plant and it's going to go back and identify it that I can't believe that they wouldn't turn that around. And once you identify it, find some way to get a model of it from a library somewhere and bring it to you. I, I just think that's a really kind of hot area out there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it, it is, uh, there's a lot of stuff already out there. It's just a matter of if, when you build it from scratch, which we used, we used some of the software in the past, you can build in the behaviors of the trees as well. So wind, all kinds of other things are available in some of these plugins. So, but I don't know what's available on the Mac right now. So we'll, we'll have to maybe ask that again on Tuesday when we have some of our other uh, CG experts. Tuesdays are kind of our graphics day, like today is an audio day. And today is a good day to ask audio questions because we have a lot of great audio experts here. So, um, so go ahead and jump in with those. Next question. Paul Wallace out of Austin, Texas says, discuss the no mono, no mono sound capsule, Wi-Fi enabled recorder that combines four compact wireless lavalier mics with 360 degree spatial audio microphone into a, I guess, a spatial audio microphone array. He's got a link there. Go, George. Yeah, I'm seeing it for the first time, like many of us probably, and um, it's very clever. Um, you know, at first, on first blush, you see $3,000 and you think, oof. How many podcasters have that kind of money? And this probably isn't for many podcasters, probably for the production companies that want to really streamline production. But it's interesting, they're, they're combining these now apparently very normalized square lavaliers into the uh, design. You know, I think that's because of Rode and their video mic goes. Everybody's getting really accustomed to seeing a square on someone's shirt. 
And, you know, I think what they're trying to do is, is use a heck of a lot of cloud AI learning systems to take all this audio information and just make an incredibly good sounding show out of it so the users don't have to know what they're doing. And lastly, they did come up with a, a way to answer that big upfront cost by having a, a $129 a month option, um, which if you are running a podcast network is probably quite, you know, if it does a tremendous amount of the work for you, including dealing with background noise and mitigating acoustics issues and so on, could be well worth it. But it's a very cool looking piece of tech. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think it, it could be good for audio-only podcasters. If you're shooting video at the same time, it would be problematic because it, it sends all the audio up into the cloud. It's Wi-Fi based. Uh, and I don't think it interfaces with a computer, so it connects directly to their Wi-Fi servers in the cloud. It sends all the raw audio up to the cloud where it's processed and stored. That's where the recorder is. Uh, so you know you're not going to hear your hear the results until after the processing is done. So it's probably not in real time, uh, or maybe it could be close to real time, near real time. Uh, but the delay would probably preclude it from being used as uh, the audio portion of an audio and video podcast. But it looks interesting. It looks uh, easy. It'd be, it'd be interesting to see how they combine the lavalier sound with the omnidirectional uh, mic array that sits in the middle of the room to give it more of a, uh, a present, you know, less of less of a close mic sound and more of an ambient sound of, uh, of a room. But we'll see how well it works. Nobody's heard it yet. Huh? Good, Jeffrey. Yeah, just a ton of work for any type of podcast or podcast editor. And then if you're sitting in a room that's already tuned to uh, to be like a regular podcast thing, uh, will people accept the fact of having little dongles on their uh, on their shirt rather than talking into a microphone like we see a lot of podcast areas? I think this will be great for like the live audio type situation. You bring this thing, you set it down on the table at a restaurant or at a live event or something like that, and then you have a conversation where there's this vast array of background sounds that uh, that you hear at any conference, and I think that will be perfect there. But uh, when it comes to home podcasting, I'm not exactly sure where they're intending to do that if, if enough podcasters have a round table where everybody can sit around. It would also be nice if they could actually figure out a flow. So if people are walking around the table, will the lavalier mics follow and then move that move their audio around or will it keep them in a static area and just have the ambionic sound in the middle do what it's doing? Go ahead, George. Yeah, Courtney made a good point. I mean, this definitely seems to be filling a, a very narrow niche nowadays, especially when there's so much more pressure for audio podcasts to be on video, to be visible and, and um, you know, being able to, you have to be able to integrate video into this some way, I think, um, if it's going to sell at 3000 But um, it's really great, clever tech, and a lot of that does come out of Europe, um, which is interesting to see. So uh, who's going to get one first to demo? We'll find out. Yeah, I think that um, moving people away from their mics, uh, I find, isn't super successful most of the time. So putting something in the middle of a table, uh, the the processing, uh, I haven't seen to be successful, even when we have a lot of time to run the processor. Uh, and I, I think the problem really is, is that the uh, the podcast market is tightening. So this is the thing that we have to understand, is that everyone was throwing things against the wall for the last two decades. 
But now what's happening is, is the money and everything else is tightening. And the ones that are going to survive are the ones that sound the best, that potentially look the best and have, you know, great, a great design that, that are unique. Fiddling around with cheap, easy ways to do this is probably um, not very competitive. People, I can see how this will sell to corporate folks who go, oh, I can just do a podcast for the company. But, you know, like the, I think Sure was doing some kind of podcast and their audio was bad. I'm like, you're sure. <laughs> like, you know, like, how can you do that? Like, how is that okay? You know, and, and so the thing is, is that, is that people, you know, someone gets sold on the idea that we can do these podcasts for a couple hundred dollars each and, you know, and, and it's going to be, you know, great marketing and everything else, but it just does so much damage to a brand to not come out clean. And the reality is, is that, you know, I can take, um, you know, a handful of SM58s uh, or, or the Stellar X2 or a Sure um, you know, MV uh, SMB7 or MV7, I can put those into a little mixer, um, like a Zoom mixer or a mix pre, and I can run circles around this device, you know, like, you know, and, and for about the same price, you know, and so if I, you know, if you said, would you like this or would you like a mix pre six with, with some, with a bunch of Hiles or a bunch of whatever with some little stands in a little box, I, if, if, who, who, if you, if you put me into a cage match with this little device with that at the same price, I will crush it, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and sure, it's a little more complicated, but not that more complicated. And if you're going to do something over and over and over again, it might be worth just learning how to use it, you know? And so, so I just don't, I don't, uh, you know, I mean, I can, I teach 12 year olds to do podcasting. Like it's not, it's not, this isn't like rocket science of, of how to get this stuff. You can make the little levels go where they need to go and so on and so forth. You know, it's not, um, especially if I'm trying to compete with the sound quality of this device. You know, like that's the thing. And so there are a lot of people in corporate that in, in education that want things to look clean and be easy and you just push the button and it works. Um, but making content is easy to easy to make or easy to ingest, rarely easy to do both. Um, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, you make some good points, Alex. I, and I think, you know, <clears throat> maybe what they're doing is doing an auto mix of the four lavaliers and laying it over a bed from the central microphone as a background to fill in the holes when the, the lavaliers are muted. But uh, I was going to point out that, uh, you know, uh, spatial sound is probably not something for podcasts. I think I listen to most podcasts, you know, on, on a portable device in, in one ear uh, or in the car, stare, you know, in the car. And we don't need to hear spatial audio in the car when you're trying to, to just absorb what the people are saying in a podcast. You know, it doesn't add anything to have, you know, one person coming out of one speaker and another person coming out of another speaker because it's going to be harder to hear in the car because you're closer to one speaker than the other speaker. I think it's it's more of a gimmick uh, for a 360-degree spatial sound uh, in a podcast. Uh, you know, podcast is to deliver information, not to set up an environment, uh, you know, or, or a listening event, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that I will say in the experiments that we've done so far with covering events, hearing that ambus, you know, having that ambisonic mic has made a difference. It definitely makes you feel more like you're there. I think you need to be able to attenuate the, the, the voice from the other bits and pieces. And I think that if you're getting a lot of nat sounds, you know, if you're out there doing an NPR style or a, or a This American Lifestyle, I think that you can, people would, if they knew that they were going to get spatial, especially Apple users that have have that capability kind of built into everything, I think they'd be more likely to listen to it that way, you know, it's, and so if it's just raw someone talking, I, I agree with you that I don't think that would make sense. If it is, um, I think it, if you're trying to create more of a, of a skate, a, you know, a mindscape 
uh, kind of experience with it, then th- there's some interesting opportunities. But I don't think this provides that. Yeah, go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, one thing that is clever in terms of panning that Clubhouse does um, is um, when there's multiple speakers, they will start um, a, one of the speakers slightly off center and then pan them to the center, which is a really great effect because it it does separate out all those voices and then, but it doesn't make you continually hear them in one ear. And they never start all four hard, they don't start hard pan left and right. It starts a little off center, just enough to differentiate the voices. And it's almost like an accessibility thing maybe. And then, um, and then they start panning towards center as they continue speaking and it works beautifully. It's a really cool feature of Clubhouse and Clubhouse is audio only. Um, and that's something that uh, there's a, there's a community around it. And maybe this, a tool like this would be amazing. And they're still, they're still around. The, the clubhouse is still, they're, they're still, still cooking. this, they, you know, it's like everything, <laughs> everything like this, there's a community that grows. Mm-hmm. All the people that were having fun with it for a while fall away. And that community coalesces around and, and it, yeah, and especially in voiceover where people still do not, do not really want to be on camera. Right. Um, <laughs> clubhouse continues to thrive. I go ahead, Ronnie. Uh, I'm thinking that they're, they're trying to fix uh, physical uh, r- uh, laws, uh, and, and we we've been into that with with Ambisonics also at NAB, and uh, of course it it it's beautiful to listen to, uh, but but uh, I'm I'm skeptic to this. What I also see, uh, I read the, the 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 content from the webpage. They are also trying to uh, change how you do it so they are uh, s- similar like we do on frame.io uh, you upload it and you get comments and so they're kind of trying to get into the whole uh, value chain and, and i'm not sure that is a success uh, factor next oh, a quick reminder that you can ask questions uh, we still have some room in the first hour and elk live will be with us in the second hour so if you check out uh, elk live online um, then you can you know check check that out. Start throwing those questions in. It's gonna, the last time they were here, it was pretty awesome, and they've done a lot since then. So uh, we definitely expect a great second hour. So check out Elk Live and uh, and ask some questions there for the second hour. And of course, you still have room to ask some questions in the first hour. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. What's the most effective entry point into developing for the Apple ecosystem? Is Code with Chris still the champ? Uh, I use code with Chris, so, so I think it, I think it's good. So that's what I'm fiddling with. I haven't found one that I liked better. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What are the most useful of the 370 templates that BitFocus Companion offers for the Stream Deck? I go ahead, Jeffrey. I'm not exactly sure what you mean by templates. Uh, I know that there are a couple companies that have templates for the Stream Deck. Uh, nothing for companion. If you're talking about the buttons, like for instance, when I load like uh, my PTZ optics, when I loaded that, it gives me button options, which then I can put together in my uh, in my stream deck. Then those are very useful. And uh, for me, the biggest thing is just creating my own templates because I do a lot of you know, a lot of things that uh, that other people don't do. Like for instance, my studio is in a different room, and I can control everything through my stream deck here and through companion here. And then if I go into my studio, I can do the reverse and then have everything come to this computer and do the switching from there. Good running. It, it's so many different templates and it depends. So uh, we use a lot of the, the things for black magic equipment and uh, uh, we use a, a few of the, for the mix effects uh, to control the ATEM mixer. So, and we also do, do stuff with um, uh, the, the sound mixer. So it really depends. I'm, I'm not sure uh, there is one single question to this. It's a lot of question, uh, answers to this. Next, next question. 
Next question comes to us from George Witham in Venice, California, here on the panel. Is the Logitech Mevo camera system stable enough via Ethernet to rely upon for a two-plus-hour show? I've spec'd it for a budget podcast network studio. Good, Jeffrey. So with the Mevo, the Mevo Start, um, when they first brought it out, they said that they had a six-hour battery in it. And, and I tested it, and there was six-hour battery. Uh, it didn't have NDI at the time. And then NDI came in, and I felt it was more like a four-hour battery at that point. Bringing in, the, uh, bringing in the Ethernet, especially if you bring in the Ethernet dongle that they, they supply, which is like uh, $150 or something like that, you can also uh, connect up external power uh, and use it that way. But uh, you should be able to get two hours out of that without a problem. But if you're using a dongle, that's not approved by Mevo. I found that it drains the battery like no tomorrow. And, uh, and then you have problems. Go ahead, George. Yeah, it's going to be a permanent install. And, I've, and I have uh, included into it their $150 PoE adapters. So we're going to go full hardwire um, and things will be mostly fixed location. Um, I just, you know, they got a $42,000 gear quote. I made it $6,000. So I'm a hero and I still make money. Um, so How much are the Mevos? It, the start kit with three cameras is just uh, shy over a thousand. Um, then you add the adapters at 150 a camera. Um, so yeah, it's still reasonable. Is it the same as three old iPhone eights? Uh, you know, through OBS? Yeah, pretty much. Um, but it's just that super clean, simple install. Still feels professional, even though they kind of look like a webcam. And I, I feel like it's going to fulfill their need, but I'm sticking my neck out, specking something so new for a project like this, but we'll see. I'll, I'll report back. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, George, it, it sounds like it's probably a done deal and you can't change it, but I would be... Oh, it's not done deal, not quite. Well, so I would be leery of, you know, hey, it, first of all, do you know what they spec'd at 42,000? What kind of gear they were? Yeah, they were, you guys all use it. You know what it is, ATEMs. Cameras, SDIs. Dude, I don't have forty-two thousand on my desk here. Yeah, well, the, like, the cameras were three thousand uh -oh. <laughs> plus. You know, they okay. were PTZs. It was and it how was many? A pretty high-end rig, you know. And how um, many of them? Uh, four cameras. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could still be a hero if you cut the budget in half, and you might be able to have something that you know you feel a bit more comfortable relying on. I don't know. Just a thought. Go, yeah. Jeffrey. So one a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, first of all, they say that they can do 1080p, but there are certain caveats to that. Like for instance, if you pinch in to uh, frame somebody uh, through the app, it will drop it down to 720p. If you're using NDI, I it says that you can do 1080p, but I found once again that I'm been getting 720 rather than 1080 on that. I use these cameras basically for over overall shots. Like for instance, when I do like a recording a band, uh, I'll take the Mevo camera and I'll put it in the crowd and then I'll get crowd shots. Cause if they're, if they're a little pixelated, it really doesn't matter in that case. But anything that's uh, pointed at a person or a guitar or anything like that, I use a higher end camera to do that. So if you're going to do that, I'd still have a couple higher end cameras just in case. And maybe even the Mevo plus, which you could still get. Go ahead, Courtney. The only thing that stuck out, I was looking at the specifications that stuck out to me, which kind of scared me, is it says under video, it says maximum video frame rate up to 30 frames per second. 
up to means yeah. it might be lower than 35%. Yeah. You know, typically the my approach to most of those, if someone had 42,000, I come in at 55,000 and I usually still get the job. Um, and, and the, and the reason that I do that is I really talk to the quality of, you know, what it takes, you know, the, the brand, you know, I don't know what, what this, this company is trying to do. If it, if the mat, if the, if the content is, they're just trying to check off a mark that we have the little studio then having something that's a lot low cost is makes sense. The real issue is, is are they trying to be, a, are they trying to use this really as a brand recognition tool? Are they trying to push themselves forward? And when they do that, you want to start doing the things that add gravitas to the, to the, to the piece. So that's the shorter depth of field. That is the, um, you know, great audio, great lighting, and that costs money, you know, to do it well. And the problem is, is that the, the real challenge that you get yourself into is you go, okay, I've got a, I've got a uh, less expensive studio and they saved money once, but if they feel like, if they start looking at other ones and come back to you and go, why don't we look as good as that? And we had $42,000 to get to nearer, nearer to that. Um, then, you know, you may end up with folks that were happy, the CFO was happy or their controller was happy, but everybody else is not happy. And that doesn't, you know, end up being, you know, what a lot of times I have a tendency to go bid over what people wanted, but what I give them back is something that they can't go back to the cheaper version. Like they can't, you know, like they can't, they can't go back to where that was because they can see the possibility. It's, it's really not about cost. It's about value. You know, what is the value to the brand? What is the value to the conversation and so on and so forth? Because you can have something that's really expensive. That's very, that has more value, you know, per, per dollar, um, than, than a, something that's less expensive. And that's the thing you have to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. Go George. Well, it was, I was made very clear, very upfront that, um, as you mentioned earlier in the show, that the ad revenue for podcasts is <laughs> plummeting. And he made that very clear to me, you know, and that budget was a really big deal to him. So it's, it's hard to find the, the maybe, maybe going that low is doing them a disservice. Um, but we'll have to see because, well, the, uh, you know, I guess, we'll have, yeah. well, I, well, I guess what I would say is that, that the, the ad revenue is plummeting, but uh, having a cheap looking or sounding podcast is death. It won't be cheap sounding because I won't. Well, I know, I know it's you. <laughs> It'll be all SM7Bs, Rodecaster yeah. Pros. They're all in those yeah. IK multimedia, $500 yeah. arms, the whole exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly. So the cameras, it'll sound great. They yeah, and, and, the and I don't, I, I'll be out to, to your point. I don't know uh, if video matters in podcasting like i just don't know if it if it if it really matters especially if it's just roundtable discussions they want that they want that look of the conan o'brien podcast oval table four yeah. mics people sitting across from each other you know yeah i mean simple. i just want to say these have been really successful for us yeah you know they're i would i would use these over amiibo any day you know it's a yeah. it's a better it's actually a better sensor um and how long I mean, can you run the cable on those like if you really want to have them around yeah. the studio then no, that's the challenge back to a, so i'm yeah. still looking for longer cables right now i'm at 10 feet you know so yeah. uh so i can't get very long i i know some people have suggested fiber ones and i'm gonna order some fiber mm -hmm. usb c's that's right um for straight copper even though they say they're gen 3 point or they're 3.2 gen 2 at 15 feet they're not they're not turning on so gotcha. i'm still working on i'm still working on that but, but i will say that that these are for a couple of the cameras i think that you'd have more sol a more solid signal and more control and i and i will just say that mevo has probably gotten a lot better but every time i've touched it it broke 
Like, and maybe yeah. it's just me. Maybe I have a magnetic personality or something in it. But well, literally it every single time for almost 10 years, when I touch it, it just it just immediately goes, Whoa, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I it, it does concern me. There aren't a lot of, like, great long shows online saying we use Mebos. No. And, and all the reviews are paid reviews. Yeah, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not been not been a good experience for me. Okay. That's why I, I, I will say the I'll little warning. i plan B in my pocket. I, this is, uh, <laughs> these are pretty good. Uh, next question. Thanks. Next question comes to us from Doug, uh, Fred Eric Eckert in Brad Heronov, Germany. If you need to move your mic out of sight of the camera in your setup and money does not matter, what mic would you choose? Go ahead, Chris. As you know, Fred, uh, don't ever say money doesn't matter because people spend all your money so pretty quickly around here. So much money. But I think the real question is, uh, what is out of uh, your... Uh, the mic out of sight of the camera. The real question is what what's your shot? I mean, are you talking about the uh, you know the Craig power stance shot that we just saw, uh, or are we talking about sitting here at the desk? I mean, my debt, my mic is great. I like my mic. I think I think it does well for my voice. It's out of sight. It's a half inch below my frame. It's literally right there. Sometimes it pops in. But uh, that's the real question. It's kind of hard to answer your question without knowing what your framing is. Good, Bill. 100% agree with Chris. You have to figure out whether the person's going to be moving, whether they're going to be man on the street walking, whether they're going to be at a desk. Those things determine it. I would probably do what Hollywood does, which is typically use two microphones, one a lav on the person that you're going to keep uh, relying on for your close-up kind of presence thing, and then an overhead boom that's fixed on a stand or something like that. That way, if for any reason you get anything going wrong with A sound, you have B as a backup for it. That's how they do most movies. It's it's not one mic. It's a combination of two, and those are all pretty well known. There's very, very good labs from Countryman and Tram, and, and Sony makes good ones, and Electrosonics has good... It, there's a lot of small capsules, and they're very hideable. In fact, that's what they do most of the time when you're a costume drama, and you can't see the mic. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what Bill says. I mean, I have a, a Stellar X2. It's out of the shot. I think it sounds good. I have more expensive mics. The uh, 416 that Bill is using, uh, Sennheiser 416, is a staple of the movie industry and has been used for many, many years. And in, if you see these setups on interview shows, like for 60 Minutes and so on, where they cut to a wide shot where you see the whole lighting setup and the two people facing each other in chairs, you'll see that there's a uh, shotgun microphone overhead over both people pointing at each person uh, that is up and out of the shot. Each person will also have a lavalier on, usually as a backup uh, to that, uh, if they are not afraid of having something mounted on them. But, uh, Go ahead, Ron. That's the way it's been done for years. Go ahead, Ronnie. Yeah, uh, exactly. Like Courtney said, and, and like Bill have, uh, I would recommend a Sennheiser MKH uh, 416 uh, hanging from the top of the of the of a stand and out of camera. Yeah, go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't have nearly enough context information to give you a really good answer. Unfortunately, we don't know if this person's moving, if it's a fixed studio location where you have control over the acoustic environment, because the acoustics are great, then the mic can be quite far away and get an amazingly good sound. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of factors. Everything everybody said, obviously, is totally valid. It's just we don't have a little bit more detail in the question will help us give you a better answer. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with the room as well. So I, I'm experimenting with this right now. So I, I just pulled my mic out. This is the same uh, what we had before. Now, as I bring it back up again, you'll see, you'll you'll hear the you know kind of the change in my 
in my vocal quality that is there. Um, and so that's why I keep it up <laughs> up here. So I really like to have, and it depends on what you uh, want to do. I think the most common thing that we've done is a shotgun mic right, and I mean right out of, like right there, just out of camera, is the most common way that we've handled um, that process. And we've typically used two shotguns. Uh, we have a lot of a lot of our guests don't like to be touched, so they um, so we don't use labs. We have one shotgun below and one shotgun above. So one coming up. It's if they lean down. Sometimes we get because we get so close and we get so in there. We to get that quality. But the other thing that we do is is like I have here in my. You know, I'll, I don't have a way to show it to you right now, but I have a. Uh, it's all blankets. And so one of the things that I'm known for at for some of our clients is I come in with sound blankets and just I'll walk into a conference room and blanket half the room, you know, because I just I hate reverb. And and so I so I immediately go in and just attack the reverb as fast as I can to knock it down. Then you can get a, the mics can move away from someone like this mic that I have right now at this distance is unusable in this room without the blankets like it is. It, there's so much there's so much reverb in my room. Um, and so, uh, so it, it's not just the mic, it's the entire environment that you're working in that's going to make a difference as, as to what, what kind of mic you can use. You can get away with a lot of mics with, in, a, in an anechoic chamber. You know, like, they, they all work at, at, a, at a pretty high distance. But once you start to have things that are going to reflect, it becomes more complicated. Yeah, go ahead, George. Yeah, it depends a lot on the size of the frame, too. So um, I just yeah. moved my mic out of frame. And yeah, you can hear how much more the room is interacting. You know, I yeah. get away with murder because I keep exactly like uh, Alex showed, I keep a tight mic placement. I've moved mine out of frame and now you can hear the room interacting quite a lot. So yeah. a lot of that all has to go, it all plays together. Absolutely. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. The Yamaha DM7 Compact is priced at United States $115,000. I'm sorry, $15,000. And the DM7 is priced at U.S. $29,000. What consoles would these be compared to? The Allen & Heath SQ5 is U.S. $4,000, and the SQ6 is U.S. $5,000. Good, Ronnie. I would say the, the thing... That comes to mind is the if you're talking Alan Heath is the D Live series or Avantis, uh, which is a little bit uh, priced, and there are uh, other brands as well. But D Live, I would think of. Yeah, I think the D Live is, is probably there, and I think that for a lot of people who use Yamaha consoles, they're they're not looking for a different console; they're just looking for another Yamaha console. Um, you know, I mean, I think people get pretty caught up in the the workflow of of what they're doing. So, if you ask a Yamaha person what they you know what is competitive, they they'll give you other pieces of Yamaha <laughs> things. So it depends on you know. Same thing if you work with someone who doesn't. Now, once you get to the higher end, they they get a little bit more flexible between a couple of things. But like whether it's but all of them are owned by the same company. No, not Yamaha, but all the other ones that, that they choose uh, are, are owned by the same company. Yeah, next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Now that iPads can take USB camera inputs, including ATEM video inputs, can you see folks dropping the Mac Mini and just using an iPad for mobile Zoom productions? I just confirm the iPad recognizes ATEM Minis as a camera. Go, George. Um, I think you're going to want to just have both on set, but, uh, you know, a mini that you can run headless with an iPad. So you have, you know, you've got your bases covered and it's still, I feel like a more robust, stable system. Even though the iPad Pro has the power, it's still running iOS, which to me still feels and really annoyingly crippled in so many ways. So, yeah, I think if you can build a rig that's turnkey, reliable and works every single time, kind of falls into my Logitech Mevo. 
you know, thing. Like, is it just because it can, is that going to be a good and reliable long-term solution? But it seems like a cool kit to put together and experiment with. Go ahead, Courtney. I think for a short show and a mobile show where you got to be out in the field, it'd be great for that. Uh, thing to consider, though, is you'd have to use uh, some type of dock, and I don't know if the video in is going to work over a dock, if you're going to power the iPad as well to make sure it doesn't go dead in the middle of your podcast. Uh, and also, uh, with a Mac Mini or another computer, I use multiple outputs on my computer because I feed you know, the second uh, video screen into back into the ATEM. Uh, so that I have the ability to put up other graphics and stuff. So uh, you'll lose that ability because you only have one screen on the iPad, you know, to deal with. Go ahead, John. Just imagine your next production. You can have uh, an iPad or a, or a Mac Mini there and then your goggles, and then you can have all your screens up in front of you. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Yeah, I definitely want to have another interface, uh, even something like this, which is the uh, the YOLO boxes or it's for any type of portable type situation, something that I'd be able to record and then take it to the iPad and work from there. But yeah, you got a lot of, as, as George said, a lot of things that cripple uh, that you can't do. So if you, if you want it, if it's easy and, uh, and bring it in, then do that. But if it's something that's critical, then you might want to use the Mac mini. Good, Ronnie. Yeah, Jeffrey just stole my thunder. Uh, but of course, uh, as the, the uh, Jack asks, for a small production where you just want to be very, very uh, light on the foot, maybe just try it out. Good, Chris. Or my truck setup that I've been talking about doing for a long time. This is, might be the way to do it. Multiple cameras from the truck zooming off the road. Hmm. At some point, it becomes a risk. That's all I'm saying. If you're driving, like you're editing, what happens when you start adding lower thirds? You start adding what well, you start flying the drone that's flying no. behind the truck that's going like you know coming down to get those. those okay, those hold truck on. Shots. So listen, Which would be great, there's a guy, by the there's way. a there's a guy on YouTube. It's called <laughs> the Story Till Now. He travels by himself. His name is Sean. Uh -huh. He does the most amazing drone shots while he's driving off road in the middle of nowhere. I'm telling you, you, you should watch a couple of his videos. They're spectacular. The guy is absolutely cinematic. He is a filmmaker, and he drives around Canada. What's it, what's and it called? The Story Till Now. Oh, how, do, how do I get him on the show? You get, you, your job is to go get him on the show. Ah, uh, that would that's be your, That's your job. That's your one job for, for, for awesome. tomorrow. Just, I expect a report, a report by Friday. Trump. Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to it, Chris. <laughs> oh, that would be. I, I hadn't I, even thought well, of that. Well, well, go, 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 contact okay. him. Um, anyway, go. so uh, yeah, I think that uh, I, I'm pretty excited about it. I don't know what I would use it for. Uh, I have uh, spare iPads that I could that could apply to it. Uh, I, I I was imagining like an iPad to do the Zoom and an iPad to run Mix Effect Pro. Um, you know, so that you could control the you know do a lot of things with it. I think it could be a pretty slick little setup. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll have to take take a look at that. Uh, next question, George Witham again in Venice, California. Try uh, anyone try the Acoustic Magic Voice Tractor Three Array microphone for conference rooms. Uh, I have not. Um, I'm not. I have to admit, but we we keep I'm coming back to Array microphones. I'm not a big fan, but mostly because I haven't seen very many of them work. If it worked well, then sure. But again, it comes back to what is the room built for, and most of the rooms that are that these go into are glass <laughs> and, mar and, and marker boards. Uh, go ahead, George. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a, a $400 unit compared to yeah. the one that advertised, used to advertise on Twit. No, it's like two to 3,000. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had no idea. I just, I just think the product name is, <laughs> is really uh, on the nose. Acoustic magic. Acoustic magic. Magic. So uh, I would love to, uh, maybe I'll get my hands on one and try it out. Because I, I, I thought of it, or actually I found it when the Nomono right. product was, was, was mentioned on the show. I was like, what other things out there would work in a podcast? For podcasts. I mean, maybe yeah. for um, conference calls that don't matter. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah go, ahead, go ahead, good, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I was looking at it. Does it have to sit in the middle of a table? And do the people have to be positioned around it? Because it's just a it, long. No, it way. looks like it's at the. It's one of those end of the conference room kind of kind of uh, speakers. So you put but it's it underneath got feet the monitor, on it like it like it sits on a table. Yeah, I think it would be at the end of your table where the yeah. it's sort of where the big monitor is. Everybody's looking at. <laughs> well, it, it, a lot of those sit on a like an arm like a some kind of thing under the. T in a conference room, there's usually some shelving unit that sits underneath where the where the TV is. I mean, that's a pretty common thing. They put, oftentimes they put like drinks and coffee and other things on them. Um, but that's where that bar, I think, would probably go. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Ketchaflia, I believe, Gursvold in Tromsø, Norway. I hope I got that close. What are the panel's thoughts on Photoshop Beta's generative fill, scanning and restoring damaged photographs, I guess has become child's play? Good, Jeffrey. Making small edits like that is perfect. I did a uh, video outside and, and I have a small crack in my concrete and I wanted to uh, take out the crack uh, in one of my thumbnails. So I just did that and boom, it was gone. It was great. Putting, uh, we did another one where we tried to put a smile on somebody's face. That was a little bit tougher. Uh, the biggest problem is that it's not the same person's face. Because I've, I've also been putting together a presentation where I wanted uh, several gestures from the same person. And I have to do a lot of extra editing to make that look good. The other thing is, and I was just talking to uh, Preto about that, is the vector images. Uh, it's They say that they can do that. But I haven't been able to find it because I'm trying to create a a uh, diagram where I want to have computers and cloud and and things like that. And uh, I just I want to have uh, vector images rather than regular images so I can fix them and make them look pretty much the same. And they don't have that ability just yet either. But once again, this is beta and this is why we do it. So we can uh, tell them this is what we need and then it becomes magically there. Go, John. Chris, cue your video. Chris did a whole video on on the generative AI, which is built into Photoshop uh, beta. And uh, and so that little project that Jeffrey was talking about, the smile, one of my friends put this in a Facebook group and she said, first person to take this girl, they had this picture of this group picture with the senator or governor or something. And one of the little girls had her tongue out. And so she wanted to remove the tongue. Well, generative AI, I sent it back and in, in about five minutes and I got paid a hundred dollars to do that. So that's how effective generative AI is. Yeah. Uh, if I, you could probably get into really good touch up business right now for a little while, you know, just saying we do touch up and it's only $20 or something like that. And people just send you photographs and you send them back um, fixed ones of their, of their loved ones for something inexpensive. Uh, and, you know, because the average person isn't going to buy Photoshop. Um, so, so the, so you can probably just uh, do it for them. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. One of our panelists appeared on the show with an AirPods Max. 
What have your experiences been with the Max as a headphone for production use? Wouldn't the latency be too high for live narration? Bill, real quick. Yeah, the, the, it's the latency thing doesn't appear to be a problem. And I say that I don't have a Max, but I do. I did just use AirPod Pros as a live from the field thing on our coverage from Cinegear. And I was astonished. I put one in and I didn't have a single problem the whole rest of the show. The latency was just insignificant for a live back and forth. It was really a mm -hmm. good experience. I can't imagine that the Maxes would be any less engineered than those. Uh, go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, when you're talking about latency, if you're talking about your own mic monitor back into your own cans, there will be some latency in that monitor feed. So if you want to use it in that context, you may not feel that isn't acceptable. But in any, if you're just using it to return audio from the field or from anywhere else, that latency will be insignificant. You won't, in exactly the context of Bill's talking about, I used an AirPod Pro in my ear as well as a, as a listening device communication uh, back to tower. And uh, it was really, it was, it was insignificant. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, coming from a 15-inch 2017 MacBook Pro. Would a maxed 15-inch M2 MacBook Air or an M2 Pro Max 15-inch MacBook Pro be a better choice for audio IT and OS, iOS development tasks? And he notes portability is important to him. Good, Bill. So I've got a MacBook Air, and I've been really happy with it. The only thing that I'm going to say, and I said the same thing when we discussed this yesterday, I.O. is limited on this. It's not quite as limited as we talked about because it actually has two uh, Thunderbolt or C USB-C ports, and it has a power separately. So you don't have to use one of the ports for power and reduce you to only one. But it's that I.O. that continually says to me, I can use this for a lot of stuff. It's fast. The screen is gorgeous. But there's a whole classification of work I can't use it for because it just doesn't have all the rest of the ports I need to connect to the outside world. Good, George. Yeah, I have a MacBook Air M1, and it's been a rock star, and I have dongles all over the place. I have one in every bag and every... Because, yeah, you always, you're always plugging it into a USB-C hub. Um, Anchor makes great ones in OWC, and, I mean, there are some pretty reliable ones. So, But if you hate hubs, then you want to go the MacBook Pro because there are definitely more ports usable for you. Um, uh, but, yeah, power-wise, CPU, just sheer horsepower, you're going to be astonished at how much more powerful and efficient and cool the computer operates at uh, over your 2017. It's, it's, it is absolutely astonishing. Next question. Next question comes to us from Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado. What are the copyright considerations for Foley use? Alex has predicted the death of stock photo. Could AI help with di diegetic and non-diegetic sound for documentaries and radio-style dramas? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, Foley use is normally used for to picture, so it's done synchronously in in a studio, recorded live by Foley performers. So copyright isn't an issue because it's all original for each individual recording. Um, I'm not sure about using stock Foley footage, if, or Foley sounds, if that's what you're talking about. There's copyright considerations there. Uh, you could generate uh, sounds if the AI gets good enough to figure out what you want and where to put it. You know. I actually think you're going to see it. This is actually something that's relatively down the middle of what AI can do. So being able to create lots of different sounds in lots of different environments that uh, don't have to be as creative, I think that you're probably going to see a lot of Foley being able to be created that way. 
Um, and I think that there's there will be ways that eventually you'll be able to process video and it will add the Foley for you. <laughs> so give me fo footsteps for that and it will time them for them. Uh, you know, along that, it'll figure out what that surface should look like and, and how it should sound. Will it be as good as a Foley artist? Probably not because the because it's it's a it's a, again it's an artistic thing. Now, will people use it for their inexpensive stuff to add a little bit of something something? Yeah. Will they use it for features? No, because a Foley artist will do a better job um, than than AI. Uh, you, you know, at a at, again the top ten or twenty percent of the of the market is going to be fine. The bottom eighty percent is going to be um, wiped out. You know, for a lot of this stuff because. And the hard part is how do you get to the top 10 or 20% when the bottom 80% doesn't exist anymore? And I think that's the challenge that we really have with AI. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I think the real problem is trying to find a computer that can understand that twisting celery sounds like a bone being crushed. <laughs> exactly. If you've ever listened, to, if you do a, a search for the the Sankin, I think it's the CO1, CO100, uh, it's a, it's the, goes up to 100, uh, 100K, and uh, there's all these sound effect folks that use it and they show how they do things and then stretch them out and, and spin them out. And you just get this whole other view of how they're creating all of those sound effects um, that sound more like what we expect it to sound like than what it would really sound like. You know, we're, we're, that's the hard part is that we're not really trying to recreate reality. We're trying to create hyper reality with, with those sounds. It's a lot of fun and hopefully we'll do more of that uh, in the near future. All right, we are changing subjects uh, to our second hour, and we've got uh, we've got the folks from Elk Live here, Bjorn El Ehlers and Max Gendabin, and uh, are joining us here and uh, from Elk Live, and we're really excited to have you guys back. How's it going? How's it going there? Very well, Hi. thank you. Hi, happy so, to be here. So, so you were here a long time ago, and I, I have yeah. a feeling that you've probably things have progressed just a little. <laughs> how how are things going? Very well. Uh, yeah, it was it was a while back we were on here. I don't even think we had released officially at that point. I think we, we still in, in the very beta. Yeah, it was yeah. it was all pre it was all a preview. So uh, so so tell us tell us where 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 you've uh, traveled from there. Yeah. So what happened after that is that we released uh, what we call the bridge, which is a dedicated hardware unit that you could use with Elk Live, which of course lets you play live together online. Uh, but and then we actually yeah we continue to perfect the system I would say and but what the really cool thing uh, that happened now is that we a uh, couple of months back we released an app version so you no longer need our dedicated hardware the bridge you can actually use it uh, with any audio interface you might have. Now does do you still sell the bridge? We still sell the bridge. Uh, it mainly right now the app is only for Mac. The Windows per, uh, is under production. It will be released sometime after summer. So right. with the bridge has the benefit that you can use it with any computer you have because it has internal uh, computing powers, right? Right, right. right. Uh, but the but the the I mean the downside with the bridge is of course that it's another piece of hardware that you need to buy. Which of course, but, but in some cases the, the the upside of it is, is it's just a piece of hardware that does the one thing that you needed to do, as opposed to being connected to everything else you're doing. You're like, oh, if I want to do something, I can just plug it in, and it's just going to work. That is definitely the benefit. I think uh, what we learned though is that um, people, musicians, have kind of already a, uh, an environment in which they work. They have a setup. They have an audio interface, and with the bridge, we kind of ended up creating a new one. Yeah. So what we find with the app is that we kind of moving towards where the workflow they already have. Mm. And of course, another good thing with the app is that it's free to download and it's free to use right now. We learned the hard way that we really need to take away. This sounds very fantastic to a lot of people. People kind of still refuse to believe that it's true. 
Right. So instead of trying to convince people, we just decided, okay, let's take away as much friction as we can. So it's free to download. It's free to use now. It's still in, in beta, but after the beta, we will uh, go into a freemium model. So there will always be free uh, use of it. Mm -hmm. Really to take away as much friction as possible because people really need to try it out for themselves to know it works technically with their internet connection. Right. And more, even more importantly, if it works creatively, musically for them, right? And and what is the going to be the difference between the the free one and the the, the premium version? Right now, we're looking uh, at the at the time limitation, kind of like a Zoom thing, where where you, in the freemium you 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 can play up to a certain amount of time, and then you need yep. to restart your session. That's something great. like that. And tell us a little bit about how, if you can show us how it works, it'd be great to see. Uh, I don't know if we can show it right now, if we have the possibility to show it right now. Uh, I, I think that's going to be hard, but w there's a link to a YouTube video. Okay, right, there, there's a link to YouTube. And of course, you can always go to elk.live, our website, where there's plenty of videos showing you how it works. And also you can register download. Well, and, and I, I guess that the um, related to that, how do how many people can collaborate together? In the same session, you can be up to five people. Uh -huh. And that's not really a limitation uh, really on Elk Live. It's kind of where, because it's 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 peer-to-peer, -peer, so it's a multiple parallel peer-to-peer, -peer, if you will. So it eats up quite a lot of bandwidth. So, so, is, it, so is it sending the same signal? Everybody's sending the same signal to everyone else, right? It can't, it doesn't, there's not enough time to send it between people. There's no server in between. It's all no, just... I, yeah, indeed, ahead. the connect, the connection graph is a full graph, full mesh with uh, each node connected to each other node. So that's why it's quite bandwidth uh, intensive. There's no compression either, so it's pure PCM. Um, so yeah, the, uh, and, five is the it's doable with the typical uh, consumer connection. Um, yeah, of course, if you have a bigger connection, technically we could uh, we can unlock that and actually saturate your connection. Uh, but that's not a realistic uh, scenario for most of our of our prospective users, anyway. Well, and 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 how and how much bandwidth does each connection take? Around three megabits uh, per second mm -hmm. right. per partner. So when we're talking five people, you're connecting with four nodes. So you're around twelve. Let's say fifteen if you have other processors running, especially for the the desktop version. Um, right. So yeah, it's. I mean, there there will be uh, users that are in a part of the world where that kind of plan is uh, is is not easily accessible, um, but there's also a big chunk of users that will have no problem um, with their connection. No, absolutely. That's that's not a big. That's not a large number for most of us here in this. In, right. You know, absolutely in Sweden either, but um, but yeah, it it could be it could be an issue. Uh, also, a, a lot of our users are are, um, are teachers, right? The education uh, mm. uh, sphere oh, is right. very interested, and yeah. that's a one-to-one -one thing. So that's that's absolutely no uh, no problem whatsoever. Uh, Bjorn mentioned five people. There's uh, um, there are plans to expand that to 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 way more, but then it cannot be a, a, a peer to peer mesh. It yeah. has to be, it has to be server based. And, and then once you do that, you have kind of a more latency. Right? You add latency, of course, you, you'll have, you need processing on the server side that will add uh, a few milliseconds. And then of course you don't really know the routing. So it might yeah. be that, uh, that yeah. you end up adding wow. distance more than anything else. But for certain cases, let's, let's, uh, let's think uh, a classical choir or, or yeah. orchestra, Once large again, ensemble. For schools where you're actually, I mean, as Max mentioned, we work a lot of schools and then 
people who live they t- seem to live near campus anyway they seem to be you know most likely they're in the same location kind mm-hmm. of so then that would wouldn't uh, Yeah, that wouldn't be a problem if we extend like that and going server based instead of no. of peer to peer. But that's in the that's in the future. We're well, very and, and much, yeah. What ahead, what are the challenges with distance? So a lot of times, you know, we talk about you know it's it's uh, I deal with latency a lot related to music, and for us, every you know couple hundred miles is a big deal. Like you know that of of how far we're connecting. Uh, does that become a factor as you start to figure out who can connect to who with your software? Absolutely, absolutely. The um, distance is is obviously a, a factor, right? We have the speed of light that we we have to uh, to deal with, um, but it's not the main source of latency. We're uh, it's more routing switching uh, that that becomes a bigger problem. Like for instance, if if we were if we were to try. Uh, between uh, you and us right now, we'll have to go through over the, uh, well, under the Atlantic. And that means basically a bunch of added latency because there's only that many connections between continents. Um, And uh, routing is unpredictable, right? Uh, uh, Your packets can take um, different routes. um, And that is actually where most of our latency comes from we need to make sure that we we can accommodate for those different routes packets coming uh, arriving at different times sometimes in the wrong order so there's there's a lot of things to be uh, to do there uh, there a lot of packets will be dropped for instance obviously we cannot use uh, we cannot use an HTTP connection uh, or even a, um, a TCP socket. So it, it has to be it has to be UDP, which means uh, no no guarantee that your packet actually arrives where it's supposed to be. Right. So you are going to run into packet loss issues that also need to be addressed on the receiving end, and that right. will add latency as well. Well, and, but but, and what and what what do you consider the minimum or the maximum latency to be able to collaborate? Because I, I you know, like for instance, as an example, I'm in I'm in I'm near San Francisco, uh, mm-hmm. you're in you're you're in in Sweden. Mm-hmm. The the nominal over private fiber, my guess, I'm just guessing on the top of my head, nominal uh, latency each way would probably be about 100 milliseconds, 120 milliseconds, something like that. So mm-hmm. it would be a reasonable. It, Round trip time, and that would probably be too much to to collaborate. Yeah. But is what we learned mm-hmm. also from the last couple of years when we work with, with with real users is it really depends on what you mean with collaborating, because mm-hmm. if you talk about playing together live, uh, that's one thing. But we also have a lot of people who actually use it to write together, which of course you want to play together, right. but you're kind of a bit more loose with the latency. You kind of just want to bounce sure. things off each other, so. When we started, we, we had we had much higher kind of almost requirements on distance. You need to be this and this distance. Right, right, right. And we now we're kind of loosening that up, that because we have people that are using it actually between over the Atlantic as well. Sure, they're not playing, you know, super tight together, but they're bouncing right. ideas off each other. So it's 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 uh, yeah. Yeah. So we 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 feel like if we can maintain round trip latency below thirty milliseconds, we're basically going to be enabling. 90% of our users to actually jam together, play together, and have a mm-hmm. good and have a good time. Over 30, everything is possible. Obviously, again, uh, if you do a Gregorian choir singing, uh, you don't need uh, 30 milliseconds. You can you you can live with more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, if uh, you need to uh, rehearse, uh, you know a. Uh, 
uh, a jungle beat with the bass player and you're the drummer, 30 milliseconds is not going to cut it. So it's it's but very it's, variable. It's interesting. We asked, we, I think you shared shared the link, the YouTube link in, in, in your invite to this. We just had a, a little while back, we had a jazz, there is a famous sweet, uh, Finnish jazz band who played a, a jazz gig in, in Helsinki, Finland. And they had the trombone player join in from Sweden, our office. So they played a live gig. And, and what's the, what was the distance between those two? Oh, how, we, how far is that? That's uh, 300 miles or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. But they played in, uh, a live jazz and that was like funk jazz, which yeah. is kind of the hardest requirements because yeah. they really play off each other and it's a snappy beat kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And when we talked to them afterwards, they say they played without any kind of issues, anything. They played just right. as they would in the same room. Yeah. So it's all also interesting on 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 kind of what the, the requirements for, for for latency, what that is, because these guys could really play like they were nothing. They claimed there was zero latency. Of course, it wasn't, but that's how the feeling they had. Right, and 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 it is. And when, when you're getting to a point, three hundred miles, you're probably nominal, like what we would consider about seventeen milliseconds each way. Mm. Um, you know, and so the thing is, is that at that rate, you're only seventeen feet from each other. You know, like when we think about when we convert. Yeah. You know, um, so you're you're relatively close together. You know, in yeah. that experience um, on a round mm -hmm. trip. So that that would make sense. Um, Courtney, did you have a question? Sorry, I wasn't near the mouse. Um, yeah, I was. Wondering if, if since you're uh, you're you can have packet loss if you're using uh, error concealment algorithms to to fill in any holes of lost packets things like that. Yeah, yeah, we yes we do. There are different techniques that we use, but the the main one is the or the one that actually kicks in most of the time. Usually, it's enough um, from our experience is redundancy. Actually, our packets are not two track of PCM audio is not big enough to actually fill. Uh, our packets. So what we do is we we send copies of the one before, and so there's always ways to uh, to reconstruct a packet, a lost packet, albeit not at the full resolution. But I mean, if you have a buffer of samples, let's say 64 samples coming in, and they're uh, they're not 16 bits, they're eight uh, with clever crossfading, it's it's never going to be noticed. Um, so that's that's the main thing that we uh, that we do. And we're working right. It's not released yet, but we're working in um, on implementing more creative way to reconstruct packets for these. Sometimes that happens bursts of packet loss uh, where redundancy will fail. Then we need another way to reconstruct that. There, there are algorithms that are well maintained and well uh, studied. So like read uh, Huffman since, or something you can use for error. Yeah, absolutely. Directions. And then now with uh, with AI coming up, then it's also an avenue that we that we're looking looking into. But it's true that uh, technically uh, we cannot guarantee um, that the audio will never ever ever glitch. That's just something right. that the technology cannot cannot guarantee. What we can guarantee is that it's going to be very painless, <laughs> <laughs> right. extremely painless. And how many channels can you send between? Just is just stereo. Uh, right now it's stereo. Yeah, um, there's plans to extend that to four tracks, um, but the um, how should I say the uh, the preferred avenue of development to send multi-track is actually not to send multi-track, but to send a down mix that is remote controlled from your station. 
You see what I mean? Yep. Uh, where uh, where it looks like you're receiving 16 tracks when you're actually just receiving a, a sub mix, uh, and your mixers. But you're controlling the mix on the other end. So if exactly. you're moving what you're doing, you're affecting that. And are you looking at like tying in MIDI controllers on my end so that it controls the stuff on the other side? Or it wouldn't be MIDI, but uh, yeah, the, 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 so, some sort of uh, uh, RPC uh, protocol or. or I mean, there's there's tons of ways to do that. It's it's not going to be MIDI, but uh, there's there's tons of ways to do that. So that's one one way to do that. Well, and and to get back to that, I mean, we, mm -hmm. it's something that that I I mean, getting hardware on one side to control the other side is is really important in the stuff that I do. And one of the things we deal with again is latency. So for us, we're trying to lock some pretty high end gear, you know, over you know over three thousand miles. And the the issue that we get into is getting that to sync up correctly. Is you know is yeah yeah. So. Well, uh, our product is not really the latency. The control latency is not really critical, right? Uh -huh. I mean, if if, yeah. if you just you just want something a little favor. louder. I I want this to be a little louder. I exactly. want this to be a little softer. I'm not trying to mix a show. You're just trying to get it to where exactly. you want it to look like. We're not, we're not talking syncing cues. We're not talking uh, right. those kind of things. It it could be, but uh, that's uh, that's not something that we're looking into. No. Uh, at the moment, makes sense. It's more like you're panning, set, uh, changing a, a plugin yeah. parameter. Nobody cares whether it takes an extra fifty millisecond to hear the difference. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Yeah, we've got a bunch of questions uh, lining up. Let's go ahead and jump into the first one. First one comes from George Whittem in Venice. Uh, by now, you may have addressed this, but how does Elk Live mitigate sync between several uses so that the latency doesn't build up? Well, we don't. Uh, actually, we don't because latency does not build up. Um, the uh, because because it's a full graph. There's only latency between you and the other guy. Uh, right. What mm -hmm. their latency is with this the, the third person does not matter and does not it does not factor in in your relationship with me. So it is true that uh, you will experience different level of latency with each of your partners. That's that's true. But mm -hmm. it's the same on stage, right? If I sit next to the drummer, my latency with him is shorter than with the uh, with the guitar player that sits uh, uh, ten feet away from me. So that's something that humans are, are very good at adapting to. It's it's really not a problem. Now, of course, if one of the par partners happens to live in Melbourne and has 120 milliseconds of latency, well, uh, the session is not really going to work very well anyway, right? So. Um, so again, the typical user for now is the band. So they're in, in, in kind of the same state or or in the same city, even better. So their their respective latency will be very, very similar and it's not really going to be a going to be a problem. Next yeah. question. Douglas Carmichael's and curious as to how does Zoom's live performance audio setting compare with what your product can do? Have you seen that? We have seen it's it. New. it but, yeah. it, but it's it's um, it's pretty good. It is pretty good. But uh, try ours, and it, you'll it see doesn't really compare. No, if we should. If but we it's should good. Be. It is good. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you you can't really say. But um, but again, the app is free. The login is free. There's no subscription. No credit card. Yeah. Try it out. Compare. You you you'll hear and you'll you'll feel the difference straight away. Yeah. It's 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 really obvious. That's the polite answer. Next question. But Zoom is really good. Yeah. <laughs> Love Zoom. <laughs> George Widemann back again from Venice. Will you make a stripped down bridge without the audio interface, but the host function? That would be really compelling. 
Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a good idea. Yeah, uh, I George, think, right? did you want to did you want to outline what you mean? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I build these studios for our voiceover actors and some podcasting and things, and, and and usability is critical, as you guys know, working with musicians as well. Some musicians are very technical, some are very art artist brain, and mm. having a very simple, dedicated interface box to me does make sense. But I, like you said earlier, they do actually use a lot of their own hardware. I still feel like there's a reason you invented the box because there's some advantage over using software, having yes, dedicated but, hardware. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But to be to be hundred percent honest, we that's not the reason why we went hardware first. We went hardware first because actually the core of our tech is uh, is an operating system. It's a uh, it's uh, a distro, a Linux distro that mm -hmm. has this very particular. Uh, uh, feature that it actually runs two kernel, one real-time kernel and one scheduled kernel. So it allows on a very cheap chip, uh, like mm -hmm. a, a really low-cost ARM chip, to run sub-millisecond latency on VST plugins, on, on anything audio you can throw at it from, from converter to converter. Uh, so uh, not from converter to converter, from after the, the input converter to before the output converter. Um, and that was our main tech. And El Clive um, became more demo of what this tech could do. And the bridge uh, um, was originally thought as that, as a demo. So actually continuing the hardware route uh, is definitely an option for us. Whether it's in the form of licensing this tech to manufacturers, right? Nobody, everyone's free to license our, our OS and build sound cards, digital mixers, synthesizer, whatever. That's totally doable. Uh, it's it's you can also you can even embed it in a wireless microphone if you want. Um, it's five G compatible, by the way. But um, the specific re request that we have that you have. Uh, we actually heard that before, a couple of years ago, someone basically producing uh, post-sync and uh, voiceovers wanted exactly that, wanted to be able to ship a bridge to uh, an artist and do everything remotely, setting up gains, and setting up filters. And to be clear, that. we've been asking for this for 15 years. Like, yeah, like yeah, that yeah. is a, there's a, so I, it's not just, it's not just voiceovers, it's podcasters, right. it's everybody. We're desperate for a box that is completely self-contained <laughs> that no one gets to do anything with and no one's built one. So that's well, what, if I, I have time this afternoon, I'll figure yeah, it out. I think it was actually on this podcast that we got the request last time. So this is really, yeah, but it's, no, it's, I don't think so. We've asked many manufacturers and they, and it, it's, uh, no, but, but I think there's a lot of hardware solutions that would different hardware solutions that would make perfect sense. Uh, we haven't seen them. Like, no, but it also that 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 uh, we're not really set up to be a hardware company, and I right. think that's the thing. But we are more than uh, open to 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 work with those who are uh, who can get some scale into that. Well, it's good to know that you know. Uh, it's interesting that you did did start hardware, so you get. I feel like Serato Scratch kind of went a similar way when they came out. They went. I think if memory serves, they were only running on Linux based computers at first. Because that was the only way they felt they were going to get that rock solid production quality, you know, uh, uptime <laughs> reliability. Right. And so you guys did the same thing by controlling every, all the controlling all the variables in a little box. And now you're finding that natively, it's not a performance hit at all to do it all native in a Mac, huh? And it's it's not a hit at at all. That's a bit of an overstatement, but um, yeah. 
And are you are you supporting Intel Max as well as as the M series? Yeah. Okay, that's great. Uh, next question. John Snyder comes up next from Reno, Nevada. What was the biggest challenge when developing Elk Live? The biggest challenge <laughs> was how you connect peer-to-peer to private users. That is actually way more complex than we thought at first. Yeah. All that from embedded device, not from workstation. So right on the internet, if you connect to a, typically a user will only connect with servers, right? So actual computers that have a public IP. But if you would try to connect peer-to-peer to to your brother, your mother, or any other private user whose station is really sitting in a LAN, shielded away from the outside, how do you do that in a user-friendly way? Of course, there's ways to do that. Obviously, network engineers know exactly how to do that. But if you want to be able to have your base player do that in, in two minutes, or even less. Um, so basically a plug and play experience, no thinking about ports, port forwarding yeah. and things. That's that's a big challenge. I mean, the truth is that not even network engineers want to be network engineers when they want to play. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, next mm-hmm. question. Next one comes from Ronnie Hossoy in Tromsø, Norway. How do you handle changes in latency regarding resyncing for all nodes? Well, um, how, how deep can I go? <laughs> go for it. Uh, I, well, I don't want to go into too many details, but uh, syncing host is is not that hard, in the sense where that you um, you can always, of course, we use an input buffer, right? The, so the network thread gives us packets. These are buffered for us because we need reordering. We need some time, even if it's just a millisecond, to uh, reconstruct a missing packet or something like that. So we do have a buffer, but nothing prevents us from dropping uh, a buffer if it turns out that there's a desync between between hosts. It's perfectly possible. The other thing is that we can detect if the if there's if there's a drift between the two clocks, and when that happens, we can just trigger a uh, an explicit resync between the uh between the client the the, the, the two nodes uh, and that is quite quite easy to do so syncing was never really a big uh, a big challenge not for a company like us anyway again we come from embedded audio that was never a really big challenge next question comes from me actually in san diego and i was just wondering if there are any diagnostics built into the software that you can run into uh, if you run into latency issues you can figure out which connection that's coming into the central focus might be causing them yeah well the health of a connection and the actual current um, round trip latency is logged every couple of seconds for each partner so that's always something uh, information that we have access to uh, in support tickets and things like that, uh, or in crash reports when that happens. hasn't happened yet, but whatever. Um, and um, so that's one thing. For the user, uh, it's 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 not that deep. It's much easier. Uh, it's much simpler in the sense that when you load up the app for the first time or whenever you 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 start it. It's going to to run a a bandwidth test and a speed test, but the, the same tech that any speedtest.net uh, website uses, and then checks what kind of values you get, and then can actually 
um, uh, warn the user that their upload is a bit is 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 on the edge or bad or it can actually inform the user of very very large wide non granular problems with the with their technology. Now, uh, from the logs we can we can get much more much more than that. But that suppose that the user will then file a support ticket or some something like that. Next question. Cool. Uh, Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts is up next. Have you seen usage in remote music teaching? This little, it sounds like this is a building business for what you're, uh, yeah, for yeah. What you're doing. And that actually was one of the first kind of use cases, even when we were in beta, we worked closely with the Royal Music Academy here in Stockholm. And there's been schools uh, in different parts of the world that try this out right from the start. And it's interesting that Coming out of the pandemic and all the lockdowns, you would kind of think that's the main reason. But actually, many of these schools have said that we've been looking for a solution for this for, for quite some time. There's a lot of, especially the big universities that moved to kind of online uh, programs. But of course, playing together has not been part of it. So, uh, yeah, the, the teaching is is something that is... Has, do you, how, what percentage of do you think your business is, has wrapped around the education market at this point? Oh, it's not. I mean, it's not the biggest part. I would say the biggest yeah. part is still kind of the 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 the, uh, the people like myself that just want to keep the band alive, <laughs> that want to you know yeah. that that place that 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 has yeah. it as a passion. I think that's we see that as a, it's, that's the report we're getting. People are, are writing to us and saying that you know we we had to the the band was dying and now we're playing more than ever. That that kind of yeah. Presence. I mean, and they might be all in the same city, but getting over from one side of of a city Absolutely. to the other, but and that's and being the interesting thing is when we talk to. I mean, I think when when you start talking about their life to someone, everyone is trying to cover what's the max distance. Everyone wants to try to break the system, but actually, when you <laughs> when you look at what most people are playing, it's yeah. the most of them are quite you know in twin cities. You know, the city next to it is just you know hour or two away. Yeah, few, very few people have a band with someone in a different time zone. So most right. people, so it's it's um, and as you said, it's it's kind of yeah. I have a, an hour to drive there. You want to rehearse for an hour, then I have an hour back. But I have the kids. You know, it's it's, it's hard to yeah. get up. Yeah. And even for the big uh, the bigger acts, right? Uh, Foreigner, for instance, we collaborated with them yeah. uh, for a while. These guys are all over the place, from west to east coast, and they um, and they use their system to uh, prepare for tours, and so it it works also also for them. And even in their home, because they live in LA, and of course, you know, driving in LA can be a big they diff different parts of LA. It, that's kind of a big, <laughs> big mm. thing, and they can work from their home studios. I don't even know if I should call them home studios because they're proper they're studios. They're studio yeah. studios, yes. but in their house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So they all kind of prefer working from them and they use it to write. So I think that's, uh, yeah. 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 And absolutely. for education, I guess our biggest project is a, a school network in the north of Scandinavia. Um, north of Scandinavia has very low population. So distances yeah. between villages and towns is very large. Right. And usually schools are too small to hire uh, uh, mm -hmm. like music teachers so music teachers they, they they're on the road most of the time going there and then going there and and um we implemented but at, a, at more at a governmental level uh, a network of bridges this is hardware bridges to connect those schools so that teachers can actually um don't have to be on the road 80 percent of their time and they seem to be very happy with the system right yeah next question 
George Witham back from Venice. In real-world tests, is there any latency difference between using the bridge hardware versus a MacBook M1 or M2 machine? Well, George, you, do you want to outline that, George, a little bit? Uh, I guess, yeah, it's just, a, mm -hmm. I think it, we already kind of did touch on that a little bit. But, um, uh, yeah, our, our user is going to notice that, they, that, they miss, that they're missing out. No, not, not really. It. I think technically, I guess they're, is a little bit late, but there is nothing that really that you notice. I think the biggest difference between the bridge and not using bridge is more like a workflow. Yeah. Since there is there there is a little bit of deeper integration between hardware and software. If since we, we actually built the hardware, so you can control more parameters from the actual app. Uh, whereas if you run, you know, any any other third party hardware, the de integration is not as as deep. Mm. But there's no real. From a, from I think if you measure it, you will find something. But from a real user perspective, yeah. there is not a big difference. And then you can of course run sessions between bridge and non-bridge users. There is, it's basically different ways to connect to Elk Live. It's the same kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, would you like have a producer? Like, is there scenarios where you have like a producer, quote unquote, or an engineer, quote unquote, who? wants to be the master or it just doesn't it's not like that because it's peer-to-peer -peer, i guess oh. right now there is no master right yeah. everyone then of course there is there is some i know there is some some that use it that one kind of takes the role as, as the master too if they want to record it or whatever but but technically there's no master everyone is equal in the session well so if i have five people and all those feeds are coming to me do i see five channels or do i just have a, so i see five channels to yes. my end you yes you see 10 channels because each sends two channels two. Yeah. Um, and so you have yeah. a monitoring. So you set your own monitor mix. Right. But, it, but, but I'm does. getting, but theoretically, I'm getting 10 discrete channels. If I wanted to record all those channels together, any one of us could, could record those if we wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Is there any reason a single node out of the five cannot have multiple musicians on that single node? What effect would having multiple musicians on a single node have on the musicians? Well, there wouldn't be any effect as far as we're concerned. It's just that they are going to need to submix their band before feeding these two tracks that are sent over the network. Right, so that's that's of course a big caveat, right? Uh, if 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 there are multiple on multiple musicians on one node, we still only expose two tracks. So if you have more than two signals, it's it would be your responsibility to, to downmix them to a stereo track or to two mono tracks. But there's a lot of people who does that. If if, if they if only one member of the band lives separately, or even even in the in the use case where we told you about the jazz band playing between Sweden and Finland, of course. The full band was in Finland and one guy was in Sweden. So so you can of course we kind of we connect locations and not musicians really. So you can be as many as you want in one location. Yeah. So in that in that case, this typical case, of course the front of house engineer had his front of house mix, but he needed to prepare a second monitoring mix to send back to the trombone player, right? So in this case, uh, the requirements as far as a, as a skill and, and and mixing and mixer and and stuff like that, uh, these cannot go. I mean, you can't go around them. You, it needs to happen. Uh, but that's the only limitation for Elk Live. Whatever you send, it's agnostic to that. Doesn't matter. Next question. Next question comes from Ronnie Hofsoe in Tromsø, Norway. How will um, hardware impact latency? And by hardware, he's thinking of CPU, buffer, sound cards, and interfaces. Is there any good hardware that is standing out as really good used with Elk Live? 
No, no, no. Uh, any any modern USB um, audio audio interface will do will do just fine. There are differences, of of course, but we're talking, you know, a, a third of a millisecond here, a third of a millisecond there. Nothing to be to be really. It's not going to make a huge different difference on your thirty millisecond total round trip. So no, I wouldn't. Now there are there are manufacturers that are a bit harder to work with. Um, people that have uh, uh, that uses some sort of manager for their input and output and uh, and um, and matrix of uh, multiple outputs to different uh, inputs, where how the app get sounds from that kind of manager can be sometimes tricky but usually these kind of products are are bought by people that know what they're doing right uh, you're not going to invest uh, $4000 on an audio interface if you don't know at all how it works so but it it can sometimes be a little bit more tricky but it's more it's more a usage uh, problem it's really not nothing with performance anyway next question George Witham, uh, Venice is back. Do you find that users more often than not need to port forward for best results? No, no, that is, it used to be the case uh, that port forwarding, man, I mean, manual explicit port forwarding by the user was the, the best solution technically, but that's that's not the case anymore. Uh, it can still be implemented. Uh, we're talking about managed networks, campuses, and and stuff where where uh, environments where where someone requires full control over the network. Uh, then, indeed, deploying such a peer uh, such an uh, uh, um, how shall I say such a, a versatile peer to peer network system is not going to cut it for security reason or for management reason. I don't know. Uh, then, of course, they will need to implement that. But usually, we're talking environments where you will have IT engineers uh, or an IT staff that knows exactly what they're doing. I can tell you that little bridge box is the difference between getting your technology into a major network uh, IT setup. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I, I, we've been, I've been setting up studios remotely using a lot of other technology, obviously, source elements, source connect, I've known for many, many years. And and getting that software uh, into a computer in an edit bay in a huge corporate enterprise network, there are still there are still some who will not permit it. Absolutely. <laughs> and, it's, and if it was just in a little magic box, yeah. then uh, it's probably we're far, far. Yeah. We're obsessed with a the little. There's a, there's a huge group here that's obsessed with a little magic box that we've been trying yeah. to get for you know again decades uh, because we've just seen this this possible this problem that we have. We know that you're not. This isn't your core competency, but we're you know that that you're interested in. But but we there's a massive market for it. Yeah, go ahead, Ronnie. Um, in um, our network uh, or or other networks, there are uh, things like uh, Dante and uh, quality of service uh, protocols. Uh, how how do your uh, protocol work? Can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? Um, well, the connecting protocol is um, basically based on the ICE protocol, the uh, Internet Connection uh, Interconnectivity uh, Protocol. Uh, which is as the at the basis of what we're doing there, or Google Meet or things like that. It's it, but that's just a protocol that allows us to to find each other on the network, right? Once the the, the connection is actually uh, open, then it's it's really not much more than a UDP socket streaming out packets. Uh, and the quality of our flag for for QoS is the same as uh, as uh, I don't remember the exact level, but um, 
it's the same as voice over IP. So pretty high priority, but nothing custom or nothing. We're not working around best practices. We're not uh, we're not bending the rules in any case in in any way. Um, that's um, that's it. Next. And question. then again, oh, uh, no. Go ahead. No, no. I'm done. Okay. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy, Tromso again. Do you think it is possible for a DJ to perform live from a remote city where the audience and a singer is on stage elsewhere? Oh, absolutely. That's the best case. For us, it's the best case. Mm. The main reason is because the DJ doesn't care about latency. They play track, right? There's no adapting of timing for them. Uh, so, no, it's... it's uh, it's, and the and the singer easy. that's local is uh, is simply listening. It'd be harder if the DJ was local and the singer was remote, right? Uh, it'd be harder. Well, it wouldn't be harder. Because well, you'd have to like, flow it through, but you'd want to get a mix from the singer to come, I mean, depending on the distance, of course. Wouldn't you want the mix from the singer with the DJ music coming back to the audience as opposed to the singer would theoretically be out of, could potentially be out of sync with the local but if the if the dj is sending to the singer and the singer hears it at the same time the audience does then they'd be in perfect sync yeah if if the if the audience is with the singer then there is no there is nothing for right. there's no problem of course the dj will hear the vocalist with possibly 17 milliseconds delay but right. that's that will be, really not really going to affect but it doesn't matter the dj doesn't matter because they're they're kind of driving that show right exactly. they're now, in the in the reverse scenario where the audience is with the the DJ, uh, those seventeen milliseconds, worst case, uh, they will be there. Yeah. Are okay. they relevant? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Jeffrey. Is there a way to nudge the sync together if they are off? There is, okay. but only one way. Yeah, only by delaying, delaying what you what you hear. Yeah, okay. So it, yeah. What if what if I brought it into software or uh, on? Well, well, I keep thinking video, but this is all audio. Yeah, that yeah we're it's talking audio. about here. And uh, but uh, th so there is a way that you could actually bring that into a mixing console and then put a delay on one of the two to yeah. actually put that together. Well, actually, the feature is built in in yeah. a bit of a clever way. Where so let's say you're 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 trying to play with some some other person and the latency of their stream is just a tad too much for you. Let's say they're hitting 17 milliseconds and you would really rather have it 12, right? Uh, a trick you can do, and that is actually uh, already implemented, is that your own monitoring, what you hear of yourself, you delay that by five milliseconds, meaning that your brain... Uh, just like when you when you re record and you have your door your door latency, right? You you will have a couple of milliseconds, maybe four, five, seven. Uh, so it's it's really not something that is that is impossible to do at all. It's very natural for most people. But so it means that you will then um, slightly change uh, the way you send your 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 sound. You 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 will actually do it a little bit before. And that way, in a way, you're you're taking on part of that latency on on your own brain adjustment. You see what I mean? Meaning that you still have those seventeen milliseconds, but the the the, the feeling that it, that it gives you is of a shorter latency. But of course, it's a trick. It's a psychologic no, no. trick. It's there's nothing it? magical there, right? 
but so, but it makes things in certain very very narrow edge cases where where the artist is extremely sensitive to to latency, which happens. Uh, that is that is most of the time enough to to cross that barrier and say, okay, now I'm good. I'm, I can I can perform, but it's not magic. Did did everyone understand that? Yeah, of course. And good. <laughs> Just a sign of like quantum acceleration. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. It, it it makes sense. It, it's it's just a it's a super sensitive subject. Uh, you know, when you start to delay, uh, when you're doing audio against audio, uh, you know, pretty much. I do this. This is my my job, <laughs> and and uh, is remote audio to audio, and and uh, and we just do everything we can to keep reducing the delay. Not ever. We we try to never introduce more. Um, you know. So it's uh, yeah. Next no, question. But for for us, okay. it's just the difference between latency that is the big problem. So by adding slight mm -hmm. uh, latency on yourself, you will actually reduce the difference, which actually will, will make you feel yeah, it, that you're more in sync. I think the the problem that we've had in the past, and five milliseconds wouldn't matter, but but if we start talking about more than that, we start ending up with a if the artist hears much more than that, it they're no, no, it immediately sure. shuts them down yeah, like they course. can't yeah, they can't sure. think. So of yeah. course, so that's what I mentioned. It's it's really useful in very specific edge cases. Right. When someone's super sensitive to it, yeah. Exactly. And it's it's really a trick. It's there's nothing because my experience is most artists most artists don't even notice five milliseconds, so they wouldn't no. they wouldn't notice it one way or the other. Uh, and but if they if you start turning it up to where it would really correct something, it would it would yeah. make them crazy. But on the other hand, I've had artists that swear that they could not play their drums with the the, the Pro Tools input latency, for instance, which is borderline unbelievable, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where they would claim that they can hear the difference between eight and nine milliseconds, or between four and five. Yeah, yeah. So. Of course, I mean, if you if you if you do get your direct sound as well, you'll hear com filtering and stuff, and that would be obvious. But if you don't, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna say okay, sure, we'll fix it. But in the back of my head, <laughs> I know that don't, I need to do something else. <laughs> you don't move the knob. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Next, next question. Better yet, have the knob connected to nothing. George Whittem yeah. in Venice, California, <laughs> can it capture the stems yeah. locally and send them to the producer for artists who don't want to figure that out for themselves? Um, of course it's possible. You can record and do whatever you want. With does your, does your software do a local record? Not at the moment, uh, right. but it's indeed the, uh, the tech choice that we made to ensure that if needed, there's always, uh, untransmitted, uh, uh tracks to be integrated into into a project, right? right. Uh, as, as I said before, we cannot guarantee there, there there's not going to be a glitch. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're producing a record or or, or or doing voiceover for a feature, well, that's not going to cut it. So the way we're going to do it, the way the bridge does it, but it's, well, anyway, um, is indeed to keep local copies of everything that is sent uh, with an auto upload to the cloud for everyone to be able to retrieve uh, easily, but there's a bunch of concepts to to be to be designed yet. Uh, who is going to own the session? Who is going to um, to get access to those files? Should everyone in the band uh, have access? Uh, there's there's a, still a, a bunch of corners that we need to to round yeah. off and decisions to be made. But it sounds like you've definitely taken that into account, though. I mean, uh, I Absolutely. know on the voiceover side, the engineers are their jobs are to be extremely picky about fidelity, sound quality, and everything, and They'll even be doing sessions over high quality connections, but still ask the actors to local record and deliver the waves after. So for mm -hmm. you guys to do that and take that friction away from a production, um, just another way that you guys can 
kind of, you know, enter that voiceover production world. You know, the engineers will will love it and the actors will love it because they won't have to even think about, oh, I have to send you a file. How am I going to do that? Absolutely. Part? Yeah, but that's that's in the pipeline. That's active, actively worked on. Cool. Surprisingly enough, the the challenge is not really local recording and uploading and retrieving. It's syncing, right? Mm -hmm. These stems yep. actually started recording at different times. Right. And uh, how... How do we sync them later? Of course, we could just have a blip and then and then Pro Tools will align the blip like old school way. Uh, but it would be nicer if there could be some sort of processing afterwards to make sure that the files are, it's just a simple drag and drop from a folder into your Pro Tools yeah. session and that's it. That would be but so ideal. We're not, we're not quite there yet. It's mm -hmm. coming, but cool. we're not there yet. That's great. Uh, next question. Ronnie Hofso, Tromso, Norway, and here on the panel, what is the latency overhead in addition to the network latency measured with, for instance, Ookla speed test? I guess it is different for the bridge versus the app. It's Ronnie, yeah. There's a, it's probably different, but there there is a difference as we mentioned, but it's so small that most likely uh, it will be totally lost in in the noise of Ookla. Uh, meaning that uh, the um, the the Ookla connects to a server. That's that's one thing. One thing. Uh, the server is ge geographically located, obviously, and uh, Ookla does performs a bunch of tests and gets the mean and of that. So those tiny differences that you will get, it, they won't show up. Re uh, they won't show up in a reliable way on a nuclear sheet report, a test report. That's that's it's just not going to happen. It might be that one one time you'll see a one millisecond difference uh, for uh, in favor of the bridge, but maybe your next test run will show the opposite. And so it's it's it, it's th these are two gross tools to actually to actually uh, detect the difference between desktop and, and bridge. We're in the order of, of of two millisecond maximum in the worst case. Right. Next question. Douglas Carmichael says, how would you integrate your product into a larger PA and or broadcast system, sending a player mix into the bridge and sending the output of the bridge to the player's monitors? Um, He's thinking really of, of live broadcast for, for this. And it doesn't sound, it sounds like most of the folks that are using what you're doing is are, are really, it's these classes or it's studio work or it's integration. Bands, They're not really yeah. thinking about how to take this and put it into an event itself. Yeah. So what we learned from the the couple of live events that we had, we, ha we had a couple. The latest one is this video that Bjorn mentioned with, uh, with Finland. Um, what we learned from that is that what we really need is a change of, uh, of the, the user interface uh, because a, a front of house engineer uh, needs different controls. They don't really care about how it looks. They don't really care about finding friends and and and, and connecting, starting. They, they need a UI that is quick and simple to do. And most likely they want more tracks, right? They just, I mean, of course, in a lot of cases, two tracks are enough, but to really take on that market, we need to design something remotely controlled, exactly what you want. Um, um, that... I think that's where we need to go if we want to be able to uh, um, incorporate in a um, uh, in a live session, a, a gig, 
uh, with multiple tracks. Let's say you have a drummer somewhere else, right? Uh, that's really what we want to do. So basically UX geared at sound engineers and uh, and this remote controlling feature to allow for this remote submix to to act as a proxy for what you actually want. Now, that means, of course, that if you're using, I don't know, a D6 or, or any other digital console with its own plugins, you won't be able to, to process each track separately. Um, but there are ways around that. Again, our tech runs VSTs, sub-millisecond, no problem. VSTs or AX or whatever, of course. So that could also, there, there, there might be avenues to, to do that as well. We'll see. Hey, go, George. I, I think a perfectly, I mean, when you guys, there was one thing you said earlier that made me go, you guys seem to really understand the users and who you're working with. But when you said that even an IT professional doesn't want to do IT when they're performing, I think that you hit the nail on the head. So once, like I know for Alex, for Alex to host this show live and make it feel absolutely seamless, many things are happening behind the scenes. He needs to see information and it just feels live and smooth and seamless. But if he was doing the other 17 jobs, he couldn't. It would be impossible. So yeah. for everybody to, to be able to do their job and have it feel seamless and is is all about down to that user interface and the ease of use and delegating who gets to do what job. So, yeah, there's so much mm -hmm. to do in that area. I think you guys are on the right mm -hmm. track. Now, it's it's important to mention as well that we're, we are a, a rather small team, right? I'm, I'm, I'm one of maybe... 10 developers. Uh, so the we need to prioritize, right? So basically, George, how loud you can get to actually request those features will have a direct impact on whether we actually get to it or not, right? So uh, user feedback is is really what we crave right, right now. Yeah, but, I'll get but, you some. Yeah, we, I'll get you we some. thought I'll, about I'll, it. <laughs> I'll, I'll start downloading and, and, and playing right. with it and pass it around my voiceover, you know, community, which is a very, a very big one. Um, and see what what comes of it wonderful bjorn and max uh, thank you so much for your time we're really excited about your software Welcome. thank you guys try it out try it yeah. out no we'll, we'll there, there's going to be some labs here maybe we, we might invite you to a lab where we all kind of a couple of us get together with some instruments uh in the back that would end be great and we'll, and that we'll, would be we'll great. output it yeah so so stay wonderful. tuned for that um we'll probably put it into after hours but we'll we will connect over elk and then find a way to pump it back in so that we can show everyone like how we're doing it and what we're doing. We've got some incredible musicians uh, in the group. So we're gonna, we'll reach out to them and see if we can't pull everybody together to do a little collab and see what see what actually happens. So that stay tuned. That would be fantastic. That would be great, yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much. Cool. Thank Again, you. Again, you can check out more if you do, uh, look for Elk Live um, and uh, check out the software. It is free right now. So, uh, so download it, uh, test it. We'll be doing a lab in the next couple of weeks. And thank you so much to the uh, panelists. I can't do this without you. Great, great uh, discussion. Great answers in the first hour as well. Uh, thank you to the producers asking all these questions. Uh, we can't do the show uh, without all your questions, without you driving that conversation. We don't have anything to talk about. We get up We get up every morning. I get up every morning at about 5.30 in the morning. I go, okay, what are we talking about today? That's that's how we do it. That's how we've done it for 1,100 days in a row. <laughs> Over 1,100 days in a row uh, is just look up and see what people have questions for. So we really appreciate all, all your input. And then, of course, uh, thank you to the incredible back-end staff. There are people who are planning all these sessions. There are people who are developing the software um, and organizing the hardware for these sessions. There's the, obviously an incredible team that is actually running this session right now as we talk about it, and we really appreciate all of your contribution. 
All right. Uh, we have traveled 77,000 miles today, uh, 124,000 kilometers, and that ends up being 611 bananas for scale. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, jump into After Hours. 611 million. Did bananas. I say just bananas? There's only it's more than hey, 611 bananas. Those are really, really, really long bananas. Really, really long bananas. I, I, it's a Facebook meme going around of a guy in a banana warehouse, which I is know, really cool. But just think if it was a, a million bananas in one banana, that would be, you could see it from space. And that's all I'm saying. You could get them, you could get them together from two locations virtually really quick like, I, I, using Elk software. I, now I know. Damn, I thought it was, this was a serious podcast, but apparently. As the credits come up, the whisper room starts. There's nothing serious about the whisper room. The Elk is Thanks, Banana Us Rocket Science. <laughs> <laughs> One banana that could feed.